Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning we are looking at Acts chapter 3. And so I'll read the text in just a minute, but I want you to look with me for a moment at the realities. Let's ground ourselves in what it was. If, if, you were, if you're in this room, if you stop for a minute and stop being distracted by everything else, you could, you could study on this room and ground yourself in what this room was about, its shape and its contents, its colors. We can't see a lot of those things in the text, but there are things we know about the location and setting for this text, and I want us to think about those just for a minute. Acts 3 is set in the temple in Jerusalem just some time after the day of Pentecost, which we've had two sermons about, the day of Pentecost. We're not sure many, how, how many days elapsed from Pentecost until the account in Acts 3. The chapter takes place in possibly two locations, depending on how you see the structure. There was a gate in the temple called the, the Gate Beautiful. It's, it's thought that the Gate Beautiful was on the eastern side of the temple as an entrance to what was called the Women's Court. And I want to give you an idea of the expansiveness of the temple and the complex it was in. The women's court was, you might think the women's court was maybe the size of this little section over here where Elizabeth is. Or you might think the women's court was the size of this room. But the women's court is understood to have been about the size of 200 by 200, so not quite as big as this, the entire two-story part of our building here. So this section with the gym plus almost all of the new section that we're developing, that's just one place in the temple, the woman's court. So if the gate beautiful was on the eastern entrance to that court, then the other place that's referenced in the chapter is called Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, and it would have been the porch on the outside of that eastern wall and entrance, okay? So the temple complex is there, and at the beginning you have the beggar sitting outside the gate. Later, it says, after the miracle, that they, the people came to them, not at the gate, but at the porch, okay? So they've possibly moved somewhat down the porch, but it wasn't a tiny little porch. It wasn't like one of these porches in subdivisions you see today with the shingle over the door, okay? Um, we don't know how close it was to Pentecost. We don't know how many of the people around Peter at the time and John were aware of what happened at Pentecost, of what had recently taken place by the giving of the Holy Spirit but it's understandable if hardly anyone did because, first of all, the people in Jerusalem were exchanging all the time. People were coming on pilgrimage, they were coming to the temple, they were coming from other places. There was a constant exchange of people. The temple wasn't sitting like our building 
out in the middle of 30 acres in the country on the edge of the city. It was in the center. It was surrounded. There were a lot of people available. And they might not have known simply because it was so big. We know in chapter 2 that 3,000 people got baptized at that particular time, and it says more were being added day by day. But it wasn't just that the woman's court was big. The temple complex, not the actual uh, building and the special holy places, but the complex itself was about the size of 29 U.S. football fields, or 26 acres. It was a big area. So you could have 3,000 people meeting in the shady grove of the temple complex, and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of other people coming around and them not knowing about what had happened with those 3,000 people. So I just want you to get a feeling for the the surrounding of what's happening in this time as, as Peter and John are going at the hour of prayer up to the temple. Because what happens shouldn't surprise, it shouldn't surprise you or take you by surprise if you're thinking little about what had happened on the day of Pentecost. It shouldn't take you by surprise if you're thinking about how big and expansive this place is and how what we'll see are so many more people being added to the church in just a few minutes. So let's read the text together if you would read with me Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, 
it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled." Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by you bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you today that by your divine will and intention you have brought about salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we thank you and bless you today as we hear this account of his work, both for one man and for thousands, and as an introduction, as a beginning for myriads upon myriads and upon our own individual hearts. Lord, we thank you and we ask that you will help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have a man who has never been able to walk. The Bible says, from his mother's womb. Now, it's not a construct that we use today. Have you used it lately? Um, I don't introduce my son and say, he's been left-handed from his mother's womb, right? But it's, it's our loss. Because just like I wanted you to be seeing and understanding the context of where this happened, I want you to see and understand the reality of the lives of the people that this involves. And it, it involves a woman who has a son. My mother had a son who was born deaf. He was born from his mother's womb, he was deaf. I know what it's like to live with a woman who has a child that from her very coils, is what the womb word womb is in the scriptures, from her very coils came this child that she travails over because there is some form of defect. So I know what that reality is, but this man himself carried that reality. It was real. And this man 
came every day living this reality. He grew from a child, eventually old enough to, at some point, we don't know how old, start doing the thing that presented itself for him to make a living, and that was that he would sit or be sat at the gate of the temple to beg. That was what he did. How did he get there? Well, the Bible says he had a crew of people who brought him. They transported him there. We had just read in the men's Bible study, Mark 2, and it talked about the men who brought the paralytic to Jesus and how they actually came and they dug, it says they dug a hole in the roof because they couldn't get into the house in Capernaum where he was and they let the man down through the roof. Again, the reality. Have you ever stood under an area of roof where somebody was digging a hole through? Understand, debris of some sort is going to fall down. There was, the house was so packed they couldn't get in. Jesus was down there. Who knows how much stuff was raining down until finally down comes this stretcher lowered by the men. There were men who brought this man to the temple. They brought him every day so that he could do his work. He had a station at the temple, at the complex. A good station, I would say, because it was at a major gate. It had men and women going through it. It was by a major place, right? And he sat there and begged for alms. How far did they have to carry him? We don't know. They could have been carrying him for half a mile. The, the, the greater temple area was a half a mile long. That eastern side, it was large. Okay? And so they were carrying him to that place every single day. And Peter and John came to the temple at the time of prayer. Another couple of faces that he notices, but maybe he does not notice. He knows they're there, like he's like this, okay? He's, they're there, you know, it's like you're, uh, you're at your favorite coffee shop getting your overpriced coffee and the barista knows you're there, but they're not really focused on you yet, right? And that's how it was, there, there's a reality they know, you know they're there, you know about them, you know that they know you're there, but there hasn't been any real engagement yet. And then suddenly Peter initiates the real engagement, fixing his eyes on him, and he says, look at us. A connection is made, the man locks his eyes with Peter and John with the expectation that he's going to receive a cash donation. Did this man know what he was asking for? Did he know what he was asking for? Well, yes, he knew what he was asking for. He was asking for money. He knew he needed money, money for food, for shelter, for whatever else he needed to carry on his life as it had been carried on thus far. Did he know what the problem was? Did he know what legs were supposed to do? As he sat there, was he thinking, you know, he wasn't consciously thinking about his legs, really. He was consciously thinking about 
his money. He was thinking about his expectation that he was going to carry on as he had in the past. He knew he was crippled, and he assumed that he was going to continue as such. The inability to walk had become his acceptable norm. It was his life. He assumed that Peter and John were interested in helping him continue to maintain his lifestyle, just as those who had carried him to the temple that morning had helped him to maintain his lifestyle for years. But instead, Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The lame man was expecting something. But instead of getting what he expected, he received something far different. It was like the woman at the well who met Jesus. She was coming for water. She was surprised that this Jew asked her, a Samaritan, for water. Then when they got to talking about water and its properties and what it took to get water out of the well, Jesus says, I have water that's different. If you knew what kind of water I had, you'd ask me for water because I have water that actually wells up inside your soul and when you have it, you're never thirsty again. And even after he said that, she didn't understand its significance. She thought it was some kind of miracle water that uh, she could have at home that she could not have to actually come back to the well every day to get because it was difficult. She had to carry that crock or whatever she was carrying to the well every day to get water. She was tired. He can give me water. Yeah, give me this water because I'm tired. It literally says, give me this water. She was tired of going to the well all the time. Now, she did receive that water from Jesus. She received life from Jesus. Did she have to go back to the well for drinking water? Yes, she still had to go back to the well for drinking water. She had something in mind that she wanted, and he delivered to her something completely different. Peter knew at this moment that it was ordained that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, and the release of this poor soul would all happen at, at this kairos, this this certain time, right now, it was going to happen. Instant healing. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. He entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. There was no gradual process that required months of physical therapy. As the brain learned how to speak to the muscles and as those muscles slowly developed the necessary tone for action, none of that. Instant, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Was he only released physically? Is that all that happened to him that day? It doesn't tell us in the scripture. Do you suppose he became a Christian? Anybody wonder if he didn't end up getting baptized? Anybody wonder if things didn't change in his life from that time on? Something certainly, something spiritual happened to him on that day. 
I'm sure he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm sure he was baptized. But what else happened to him in the aftermath? Sure, now he could walk and run and even leap, but he had lost his begging job. An absolutely new life ensued. I'm not trying to be cute by saying this. I want you to understand. He was completely in a new place. He hadn't been trained for something else. Something completely new. He knew that he had a new life provided by Jesus Christ, a life that was physically new and a life that was spiritually new. He was born again. Something absolutely new is what was on the horizon. He knew that walking would be the new norm and that begging was a thing of the past. And he knew that there would be some adjustments that had to be made physically. But also spiritually, he knew that he was repenting of his sins and that his motivation was now to grow in holiness as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was given a new norm, both physically and spiritually. The old norm was gone, and now there was a new norm. And all the people saw him praising God. So eventually, as this man is still with Peter and John, in fact, it says he's clinging to them, they make their way to the porch, and the people see him, and so the people all run to them at the porch, full of amazement, and Peter begins to preach. And his sermon begins with a wonderful setup. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us? Okay, we would all think, but then he he actually adds and connects what he just said to disabusing them of some certain notions, okay? Of course they were surprised. The man they had seen at the temple for years was walking and leaping. But he's he's also disabusing them, them of something that he knew that they were thinking. So he says, why are you amazed at this, or why did you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Jesus didn't take his hands and rub them together to get his chi focused and burst his chi energy into the man. Neither had he and John in their religious devotion and the doing of their duty achieved some sort of, some cash of merit that they could spend on miracles. And Peter wanted them to know, I don't have power, I don't have piety. It isn't us. Because he was about to introduce them to the authority and power of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that there are four sermons, I think there are four sermons in the book of Acts that Peter preaches. And all of them contain at least two elements that are the same. One is he always says when he's preaching, uh, you killed Jesus. Now, there's one time when he doesn't say it quite like that. And that's when he's talking to Cornelius. And he says, they killed Jesus, okay? But it doesn't mean that Cornelius didn't 
benefit or that Cornelius would have been done differently had he been a Jew. It just means that he changes that sense. But the fact of the matter is, that's a, that is part of every sermon Peter preaches in the book of Acts. The second part is, God raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. He said, we're witnesses. God raised him from the dead. And so he says this to the Jews, you killed him. You killed him. You put him to death. The prince of life, you put him to death. In fact, there was a, there was a robber murderer in the jail, and you clamored in your herd think, you clamored for the robber and murderer to be released to you instead of Jesus, the Holy One, the Prince of Life. This is sin. This Jesus was the one that the prophets all spoke about. Therefore, return and repent so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Turn, repent. He goes into quoting Moses, a a quote that they would have all known from the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 18 will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, says Moses, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. (laughs) I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So those people with Moses, they were saying, don't Don't make us have direct contact with God. We can't take it. And even God acknowledges that they're right. We can't take it. And he uses that opportunity to prophesy about Jesus who would come. Who would do what? He would be the eternal mediator between God and God's people so that we would never have to see God's face unmediated, right? Because what would happen? We would die. We would die. The people ran to them. Why did they run? Well, they ran because they were expecting something. What would you have been expecting at that time? You were at the temple. You were at the temple to worship. You were at the temple, maybe they were just at the temple because it was a big place, maybe they were. You know, do you think there were people who just went to the temple for kind of their own temple tour? You might have been at the temple for any kind of reason that day. And you heard or saw or, or understood that there was a man who had been lame from birth who was healed immediately. And so you ran to that place. I don't know what their expectation was. Maybe that some type of entertainment. Maybe they wanted to see another miracle. I don't know what their expectation was, but they came running. I do know this. They weren't expecting the sermon they were about to hear. That I know. That's not what they were expecting. Were they aware of their spiritual condition? 
Did they know what they really needed? Peter says that Christ had come to turn them from their, quote, wicked ways. They thought their wicked ways were the acceptable norm. Just like that lame man thought that his legs were the acceptable norm and that he was going through life with those legs like that and he was going to live that way. These people thought that their wicked ways were their, the acceptable norm. This is how things are going to be. How conscious of it, we don't know. They were of it, we don't know. But they needed to be preached to and delivered from their wicked ways. Peter introduced them to themselves, to their mob tactics, to their herd think. Herd think always seems to focus outward on someone else, uh, on protecting the herd's prerogatives, practices, prejudices, preserving these things so that we don't have to turn from our wicked ways, right? Peter's sermon aimed at the personal responsibility of those present. The monopoly that was held by the herd was busted. It was busted. You know, if you want something contemporary, it's kind of like, it's in some ways like the arrival of a busload of immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, okay? Because suddenly at Martha's Vineyard, I'm not making a comment on whether we should love immigrants, we should. The scripture says we should. But, but suddenly the, the monopoly on groupthink in Martha's Vineyard is, is broken because suddenly you have to do, deal with the reality of responsibility. And that's what happened here when Peter preached to them. Suddenly they were made aware. You're responsible. You're responsible. The Holy Spirit pierced these souls to the heart and they felt the weight of their wicked ways. What happened? Well, it's not fair, but I did, I did get a dispensation from Stephen Baker to actually tell you from chapter four what happens because he's preaching on chapter four next week. And it ends with Peter's sermon ending. What happens in chapter four is that Peter and John are arrested and that with them, the, lame, the formerly lame man uh, either is arrested also or at least he's taken with them to the court. And it says in the context of those court proceedings going on that no less than 5,000 men believed from their hearing of that sermon in the context of the healing of that man. 5,000 men, we don't know how many women. That's a big group of people. That's a big group of people. And the power of the Holy Spirit as he works, as the testimony of Jesus changed their lives. Thousands of lives beginning believing. Thousands of people who, whose old norm was their wicked ways, but whose new norm is holiness unto the Lord whose new way is Jesus is Lord, whose new way is repentance and faith, just in a day.
just in a day. I assume that these ones joined themselves to the others that had already been a part of the church. Maybe they found out, where are you ever, where's everybody meeting? Where do you guys go? We meet over in the Shady Grove, over there. And they started meeting with them, devoting themselves to the same things that the others were devoting themselves to, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. I've tried to focus on a lesson from this narrative that would clearly and regularly apply to us. The scripture says that these things, the works of Jesus Christ, have been written down for our sakes so that in hearing of them, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. That we might believe. Now, I'm declaring to you what Jesus did in this, in this account. I don't have to tell you, but I will say anyway, I have no power and no piety to, to be able to effect a change in you, none. But Jesus Christ, he can effect a change. But you have to want to get rid of the old norm. You have to want to see the old norm and get rid of it. Philippians 2, 5 says, We have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, says Paul, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you remember when you were introduced to to Jesus Christ? Did you know when you heard about Jesus Christ what you needed? Did you know what you needed? Or did you think you you were comfortable in the norm, whatever that norm was for you? And trust me, we all know it was wicked ways, okay? What was the acceptable norm that you lived in before you believed? Have you found a new norm? As Peter says in verse 19, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What did the lame man expect? What did the Jews expect? What do you and I expect? from Christ today? Are you enjoying a life, a new life, 
bought by Jesus Christ through faith and believing. Life in Christ does not come through herd think. Life in Christ doesn't come through herd think. Herd think has to be gone for there to be life in Christ. And you say, well, 5,000 men believed in one day. Yeah, they believed. 5,000 of them believed in one day. So did one crippled man believe in one day. But every, five, every one of those 5,000 people, they believed in Christ individually. Herd think doesn't work in this context. Uh, like in math, you know, you do a math problem, you need to do a proof for the math problem. I could never figure out how to do the proofs, let alone the problems. But, but the math problems have to have a proof. You want a proof for why herd think doesn't, doesn't, uh, why herd think doesn't work with people when they follow Jesus Christ? You want proof? Apply this, apply this proof. What does somebody do the moment that they suffer any kind of uh, shame or uh, persecution by connection to Jesus Christ? How does the herd work out for you then? Because you're left alone with your own heart and you're left alone with the reality of whether you will confess him yourself before men or whether you will deny him. There is no herd think in Christianity. There's no herd think in Christ's church. We come to God, we come to him individually. The scripture says we'll stand in front of him individually. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will deal with the deeds we did in the body. That lame man will stand before Christ. All of those 5,000 men will stand before Christ. That lame man will, will plead Christ at the day of judgment. And he will look at his life and he will be able to say, I did, I did sin, but God be praised. I have a mediator. And, and also, I have the new norm. I live covered by Jesus Christ and by his work. I live in his righteousness, not with a righteousness of my own. We must come individually to Christ. And so this morning, perhaps you have come away from the herd a long time ago, but have gotten casual, feeling the tugs of the old norm. Perhaps you've never gotten away from the herd, but you're thinking, well, this morning, wow, okay, that's significant. I understand. Maybe God's speaking to your heart this morning also about your need to get away from the herd. We have the privilege today of coming to Jesus Christ. We don't just have the privilege of coming to him. We, we are going to celebrate his meal in just a moment. But we have the privilege of coming to him to have the, 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 the next splash of living water well up inside of us. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that's what life is in Jesus Christ. 
And that lame man, he had to start off the next day with a whole new trajectory, and he stumbled his way, even though his legs worked great, he stumbled his way spiritually through the rest of his life on this earth until he stood before God. And wherever you are in your approach to Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you are stumbling your way forward, and God, in his kindness and mercy, wells up water in your soul. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Bless him. Bless him. Come this morning to his meal with your spirit walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your kind mercies to us mercies that we certainly don't deserve. And we pray now that you would feed us through Jesus Christ and his work. We bless your name. We say it, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.